Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz composer, percussionist, visual artist, and educator Jerry Hemingway. He is an immensely talented and interesting cat living in Switzerland these days, and he's been there for the last six years. His life began in New Haven, Connecticut, and took some very cool turns after meeting and learning and looking up to Anthony Davis, Leo Smith, and the great Anthony Braxton. He actually composed for the Kansas City Symphony back in 1993 and learned quite a bit from that experience. Jerry has a richly interesting jazz bio and music journey, and he's very compassionate about retelling it. So please dig this interview, my friends. I'm okay. How are you? I'm wonderful, man. Hey, thank you for taking some time out to talk with me today. My pleasure. So I'm going to go ahead and start off right here. I know you're pretty detailed on your website about what's going on in your world, but I always like to hear kind of a verbal snapshot of what's been going on in your life lately. For the last six years, I've lived in Switzerland, in the town of Luzern, which is in the central part of Switzerland, or the German part. I have been um, enjoying and slowly developing in lots of different ways, engaged in a job that I was invited to do here at the Hochschule Luzern, which is a Hochschule in German means high school, but it it means instead, in fact, the equivalent in American terms to college or even graduate school, as it tends to do a mixture of bachelor and master level education. The uh, system here in Europe is a little bit different than it is in the States, but it's there's an attempt to try to make the two systems fairly much in alignment. They call the system here the Bologna system, and it's modeled after the Oxford University, which is more or less what the U.S. universities use for for accreditation in terms of all the work you do. At any rate, I've been I've been here all this time, and over time, my work as an educator has uh, has blossomed into a lot of different departments. I'm I was ostensibly brought here to teach the drums, but now I teach composition, I teach improvisation, I teach electronic music, I teach songwriting, I do a lot of things that that reflect the broad scope of interest that that I am. And so, um, and I'm also very involved in, I just just came from a meeting that uh, was regarding future plannings for the school, and so I'm... I'm, I'm involved in enjoying it, and it's a, it's a good good experience, good good faculty, very interesting school. So that's and it's a big part of my life. It is uh, it's it's a, it's the central thing that holds me here in Europe now. But I am performing a lot, and then the funny and interesting thing is is that despite having such a, res- a heavy responsibility with this job, I I actually have never been performing more often than now. Uh, maybe the only period earlier in my career where that might have, where I could maybe say that wasn't true was when it went more in the, um, in the eighties when the vitality of the European scene was very, um, intense. So I was on like nine week tours and so forth, but that kind of situation doesn't exist anymore. So I am, however, performing a great deal. And uh, tomorrow I take off to Beirut, Lebanon to perform with the Frank Krakowski Quartet. Frank is somebody who's, who I originally met via the Klaus Koenig Orchestra. And um, Frank is an incredible saxophonist, uh, bass clarinetist and clarinetist. 
and his quartet is a quite an outstanding group. It also contains a trombonist who I've had a long association with, who's based and is from uh, the Netherlands. His name is Walter Virbos. And um, as well, Dieter Manderscheid is the bassist. This group has existed for quite a long time. We've, we've actually produced, I think by now, I don't know, five or six different CDs. And a very wonderful band, great chemistry. It actually originally started as a trio without the trombonist. Beautiful group. Very much enjoy playing with these guys. And it's my first time in, in Lebanon, which I, mean, I have to admit that I'm a slightly... Uh, nerve-wracked by going to such a place so close to Syria and so close to the to very, very dire events in the world. Um, but uh, one must take a little risk in life and understand what's going on by being somewhat near it and somewhat close to it. And I think the situation is, in fact, perfectly safe and will be okay, so I'm not worried about it really. But it's, for me, a new experience, and so I'm looking forward to that. And it's one of the great things about being a musician is... Uh, is having the opportunity to um, experience new things. Well, speaking of new experiences, that has to be a You've been there for six years in Switzerland. Um, how has it been to kind of adopt a new way of life in Europe and kind of, you know, not being in America for this long? For me, it works. I wouldn't say that for, my, for some of my fellow colleagues who've thought about or talked about perhaps expatriating to uh, another country or to Europe, it's, it's not for everybody, let's put it that way. My experience is fairly positive. The challenge that I would face and anybody would face in going into a different culture is primarily surrounding language. In this country, language is a very fertile topic. After all, there are four languages in the country, and uh, most people I run into speak a good deal of them, two or three of them, if not more. So in this country, where I'm living, German is the main language, the central language, but there's also what's known as dialect. Dialect or dialect is, uh, is the local language, and there are many such local languages spread throughout the country, particularly in the German part, but also in the French part. But everybody I meet here can speak this so-called high German or regular German, and um, they can speak dialect, of course, but in different ways, and they have sometimes even a hard time understanding each other, depending on how, how far away they are from each other, wherever they grew up. You can actually grow up, you can believe this, you can grow up about 30, 10, 15 miles from each other, and speak, the local dialects will not be necessarily understood by each other. In other words, you can be living that close together and actually speaking almost what amounts to a completely different language wow. just 15 miles down the road. Wow. It's pretty wild. That the is. language is really, a, like I said, it's a fertile topic here, and it's very, very, it's very interesting. And, and for me, I'm rather enjoying the challenge of trying to master, first of all, German, which is uh, something I've always wanted to do, but never really had the time or patience or uh, whatever, or just the drive or the will to do, and now I'm kind of forced to do it, and I appreciate that I'm forced to do it, and, and I'm working hard on it. It's a very challenging language. The more I understand it, the more I learn it, the more I speak it, the more I'm functioning in it, and reading it, writing it, listening to it, and, and more or less able to deal with it. 
it uh, the more I enjoy living here because it's really a, a natural thing that one wants to speak the language of where you are. Now that's not true of a lot of Americans who live in Switzerland. A lot of Americans who live in Switzerland never bother to learn the language and continue to speak English all the time because everybody here speaks English. It's also one of the things that makes it hard about learning German is because whenever I speak to anybody, it's very easy to switch to, to English. So you don't really feel... I mean, you could get by without ever really confronting language and, the, and, the, and going deeper into the culture. But for me, that's not the way I want to live. I'm, I'm interested in where I'm living and learning from where I'm living. And that's one thing. And, and a lot of people wonder if I really miss the States. And um, I, of course, I go back quite often. My, my son lives in New York City, and I'm, I'm back in the city fairly often, three, four or five times a year for a few days or a week at a time. I'm slightly restricted as to how long I can be in the States due to residency uh, laws, uh, tax laws, basically. I can only be in the States for up to 35 days or else I run into a tax problem. But otherwise, I'm, I'm basically you know, slowly becoming more and more adjusted to life here and enjoying it. So you grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, started playing the drums as a kid, and by 17 you were working professionally. What was it about your early life that lent you this love of not only jazz but music? Well, that's a good question. I think that the, I, I myself also do a lot of interviewing, um, and I, I'm, it's a, I'm very curious why people got in the game in the first place, and particularly why they stayed in it, <laughs> why they continue... Uh, sometimes against many odds and against all rational reasoning to stay in a profession that's pretty difficult to to make a comfortable life in, let's put it that way. Yeah. So that's what I really take your question to be. And I would say that what got me in, I mean, to, to start there, as far as, far as I did start when I was around 10 years old playing the instrument, um, you know, that meant that I would, that was 1965, basically. And, and in the 60s, that was a very rich period of musical... I was surrounded, basically, by a, a very vibrant musical culture that became more or less some mixture of the British invasion and the San Francisco psychedelic scene. And, and, and all these things were um, a very exciting, exciting times in music. And I saw all of that stuff. I saw it all live. I went constantly to concerts my my parents were kind of well loose or, or very forgiving or I don't know what but they allowed me to go to these concerts quite often even when I was 11 or 12 years old I was showing up at Jimi Hendrix concerts and so this made this established in me a, 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 a passionate relationship to music first as a listener but I kind of noticed that I kept going closer and closer to the stage and I guess that was an indicator that I I had some feeling for wanting to be on the thing. <laughs> so, and I was playing the drums, and of course I slowly began to create a social world out of music and found people to play with. But this took time. It didn't. I didn't really get to that until I was more like fifteen or so, or fourteen or fifteen. 
and then I was in a kind of a country band, and I'm and I'm sort of doing rock and blues jams and things of this nature, and and at that time I was in a I was in a boarding school in New Jersey, and I I made friends with anybody who had illegally had a car on campus so that I could <laughs> regularly traverse to New York City and see again more concerts all the time. I that was the, that, I mean to me this is the key. The key is that I. I went to hear the music. I went to see the music, and around this time, around that, I got to be interested in jazz only because my listening tastes were very adventurous. And so, by 1971 or 72, I had a collection that spanned from Led Zeppelin to Sun Ra, and, and I had Coltrane, and I had other things, and I was I was really curious about all of these things, and I kind of. Also, the fusion music was drawing me, and Mahavishnu and uh, Return to Forever, and this kind of thing was attracting my attention as well. And so, I did, in fact, go fairly often to see bands of this nature. I remember seeing what the first first edition of Weather Report in New York at the Beacon Theater, and I saw Larry Coriel a few times play in, at Slugs. Eventually, I found when I did find out about Slugs in New York City, then I said. Oh, this is a cool place. Not knowing, completely naive to the fact that I was in one of the most dangerous parts of New York City. But I just <laughs> waltzed into this place at 17 years old. How I even got in the door is beyond me. I have no idea. I said, "Who's this guy playing?" Oh, it's Elvin Jones. I think he's on one of my records. Let me go check him out. You know, and I was like, in other words, I was just an adventurer. I didn't. I was interested in everything. I would go and check things out, and it just got me more and more and more hooked as I. As I went in, and so I decided to go to. I, I sort of set off on a path that looked like I was going to the Berkeley College of Music, and I did. I got accepted and was planning on going. And then I met a lot of very interesting musicians. Before this, before I got actually went to the school, I met quite a few interesting musicians in New Haven, and this was the turning point. That's the point that I refer to as 17 years old, and when my professional career began, because the people I met were very compelling people. It was a lucky happenstance that I happened to meet them: Anthony Davis, George Lewis, Jay Hogarth, um, uh, eventually Charles McPherson, Mark Elias, Mark Dresser, Ray Anderson eventually, but via New York, because he never lived in New Haven. But all these, and the most important of all was Wadada Leo Smith. He was the, um, he and Anthony Davis were the ones that were most, and George, I would have to say, were, were very uh, influential in my realizing that I had found my home, that this was where I wanted to be, that this is, this is exactly the music that I wanted to be involved in. This made perfect sense to me. Didn't matter that I was a white boy from a suburb and, and, and outside of New Haven, Connecticut. This music was all the world to me, and I and I, it was nothing but possibility and nothing but uh, but things to do, lots of interesting things to explore. And so there I was, suddenly in the music. And I did take I, because I had gotten into the Berkeley College of Music. I eventually felt I just delayed it for a little while, but then I felt compelled to go. And I did. I did go for one semester, but I didn't find it. Um, coherently related to how I had figured out music up until that point, which was entirely by autodidactic methods. I had taught myself how to play. I had taught myself everything I knew about music through books, through listening, through a few teachers, but basically I, I yeah, I just figured things out on my own, all by ear, all by, by you know, by, by passion and interest. 
And, and going to the college did show me a light about the fact that there was a lot I didn't know. And there was a lot that my autodidacticism was, was leaving out of the mix. And so I had, I had some holes, let's put it that way, in my education. And that's how I met Alan Dawson, the, the great master drummer. And eventually, soon, uh, when I spoke with him just before I left Berkeley, I arranged to take lessons with him privately, which I did for about three years. And all of these things contributed to my being... Just, you know, I have to say that one other thing to say about this whole path is that I, I, I knew that I loved music and I was doing it, but I was never thinking about what was, where this was going exactly. I had no, I mean, I had dreams and goals and was slowly achieving some of these things and they were becoming slowly bigger and I had greater and greater ideas and I was kind of following my mates in terms of what they were up to what they were up to and I was Anthony Davis was clearly a composer and so I composed and that's how I learned how to compose I just composed I didn't <laughs> I didn't know much about it but I went for it and I slowly became adept at composition partly by just doing the process of composition and uh, so so like it was interesting to me looking backwards is that I didn't you know there was no real plan I just I just found myself in this community. I found myself loving everything that was going on. I found myself enjoying the the. I had a lot of joy in playing music. There was no question. Yeah. <laughs> it was clear. And this only basically sophisticated itself over time as I slowly gained more tools and became more richly involved in a very wide tapestry of musical curiosities. I became really curious about many kinds of things. Anthony Davis used to say, you're the most omnivorous listener I've ever met, which means I, I listened to everything. I really checked out. People would come to me to find out about about you know an obscure Delta blues musician or uh, you know very uh, you know the the new cutting edge of analog uh, synthesis and or you know whatever all these things I would or wanted to know a lot about Baby Dodds or or King Oliver and I, I was interested in everything I was checking it I was really doing my homework basically by listening to a great deal of music and trying to be well-informed about the possibilities of what music could be. I, I love that term, omnivore. So let me ask you this. You obviously hit the ground running in the late 70s. You form the group, bass, drum, bone. And then in 07, you have a 30th anniversary. What was it like to kind of reconvene and to have that group around for so long? Well, bass, drum, bone is a, is a very important part of my story, and it's interesting you raise up the topic of bass, drum, bone, because we are one year away from our 40th anniversary. In fact, that uh, I should mention that we are uh, involved in quite serious planning about the celebration of that milestone in our, on all of our lives. And I think a fairly rare milestone in jazz in particular, very few groups uh, that I know of, other than I got in, uh, really qualify for being a group that never changed personnel and um, always and maintained a such a long history. Of course, we had yes, it's true we had dormant periods where we were both where we were, all three of us were involved in different things outside of bass trombone. So in, in essence, we had this kind of coming away from and then returning to and coming away from and returning to the group. So we did we weren't like playing gigs for forty years every year, but we were nonetheless we did we have done. I don't. I can't. We we way lost count a long time ago, but hundreds upon hundreds, perhaps over a thousand gigs together. We've done a lot of concerts over the over all this time, 
and have made quite a few CDs as well. And now we take this, uh, you asked about 07, and that the 30th anniversary was, was significant. We managed to get a, um, a grant from the Chamber of Music America, and from Chamber of Music America they supported us on. We actually enlisted ourselves as a band as opposed as to an individual, and all three of us made compositions, all of which were released on the last recorded release of ours, which is called The Other Parade, came out a couple of years after the anniversary, around 2009. The record is, is, uh, is a very good document showing our this project as it, as it evolved. It's, it's this kind of thing we have in mind for the 40th anniversary, although we have much bigger plans this time around. We are, we are hoping and working very hard, and I'm sure that with our concerted effort we will achieve uh, a major label release the finally for this group so that we can bring attention to the group uh, to a much wider audience so uh, which has heretofore been more or less you know the more the audience that is has followed our work or followed any of our individual work over all these years um, what we'd like to see happen is that that, that we have a, something that you know, as, as what is left of the major labels can still provide, which is a, a high level of visibility and uh, some kind of commercial viability for larger festivals. So we hope, the hope is that if, we'll, if we succeed in doing that, perhaps having a few of our friends as guest artists on, on, the, on, the, on, this, on this special event CD, then, then perhaps we'll be able to be able to perform on some of the American festivals uh, throughout the year uh, in 2017, as well as, of course, the European festivals where we are more, which is more familiar territory for us. But we would really like to make as many appearances as we can during that year, and all three of us are concentrating on the group as a centerpiece of what we'll be doing next year. Absolutely. You know, they always say, and it's true, you know, being an artist is kind of a solitary lifestyle to a certain degree. And throughout your career, you've been real prolific with quartets, with Anthony Braxton, Ray Anderson, Herb Robertson, but you've also been very prolific as a soloist since 74. What do you prefer? If you could, if you could reach your hand in that magic bag of projects and pull out the ideal slip of paper, would you want to do something on your own or would you want to team up with some people? Well, I can't give you an answer that will satisfy the question exactly because I, uh, like the omnivorous listener, I'm a diverse artist. I, I am not. I'm restless, basically. I, I, I'm interested in many things. I'm interested in many platforms or vehicles, if you will, of expression. Solo music is a theme as we look over my whole output over all these years. It's true you, you correctly identify the beginning year, 1974, uh, as where I began this um, road of making solo performances. And ostensibly, this was uh, in, mostly inspired by, by Wadada Leah Smith, whose solo performances on trumpet and, and multi-instrumentalist types of things like percussion and so forth was, for me, a, a, a big lighthouse of it made a lot of sense to me as a listener i mean i went to his performances and i went i really like this experience of being one-on-one -on -one with um with whom i'm hearing it's a very special kind of relationship that solo performances give and i had also it wasn't the first time i had encountered this i'd also i have some background in classical music since it's in my family to some degree my grandmother was a concert pianist and 
my father also was was involved in composition himself, and so. But any, but via my family, I had experienced a great deal of classical music as I was growing up, and some of that included uh, solo recitals. And so I got to see great virtuosos perform, um, such as Arthur Rubinstein, um, on stage. And when I saw that, I said, "Wow, that's or or a, or a blues singer, a folk singer, just a songwriter, just with he and his guitar." Very powerful stuff. This intimate thing of being one-on-one with with a player and a a creator of music. I've kept it as a as a as a running theme throughout my entire um, life in music. And the most recent uh, expedition on that front, uh, the the double the CD that is not exactly just a CD. It's a CD and also a DVD called Kernelings. This this project is the fifth production of solo music I've made. In, indeed, I, I continued to make what I, what I took to be um, the kind of continuation of my, of my thinking as a solo musician. And I, I should say one other thing about solo music that's, that's, I think, important and probably interesting to your listeners. For me, the thing that I found interesting about sol- doing solo music, particularly in the sort of earliest stages of it was that around 1980 or so I spent I had a lot of time where I had very little gigs I supported myself with work outside of music and I very much concentrated my whole social spectrum of of all the musicians I was involved with was kind of for for lack of a better word fairly dormant in this period I just didn't have any work so that's why I took work outside of music as a in construction and so forth and supported myself one way or another but I concentrated I thought a lot about I played by my own I really concentrated on what could I do with this instrument what how could I really elevate this solo music into a, a different realm and then I developed what I think could be said to be a very personal vocabulary or I, I kind of documented it I, I wrote it I had already been developing it and that codified into making compositions for my instrument and that process has unfolded over the years into a fairly nuanced way of looking at the instrument as a, as, a, as one might look at a solo piano performance, noting that this instrument has harmonic possibilities, has melodic possibilities, of course it has rhythm possibilities, and sound and clong, uh, clong like sound worlds, texture worlds, it has many options, uh, it's very orchestral, it, uh, it can be very, and so I've done many things, and, and now in this most recent edition, there, there is what I, what I take to be some kind of process of distillation going on, which is to say that the pieces that were at one point quite complex and elaborate and, and highly detailed, fairly, fairly thoroughly composed, are now more openly improvised and very simple, very different feeling coming from me at this point. I'm kind of more, like it's kind of typical of getting older, you sort of start to see the essence of things um, in a way. And um, so I kind of go right to the fundamental thing that I think is most valuable in the musical, um, in a musical way, and somehow identify what that is, and, and, and let you know use it as a as a as a potential launching area for my my expression. And then this is coupled with this other aspect of my artistic interest, which has heretofore been undocumented, or at least not released publicly, which is that I've always worked quietly as a visual artist, and um, and always been interested in it, and always been really interested in film. And so the, the other half of the production is a DVD featuring a long film that is 
really related to what I'm trying to do as a solo musician, as a solo thinker. But it's also uh, it's just it's just really a sound and image um, uh, creation that reflects. I think with the two things together, they're not they're, they're related only in that they show us they show the listener or the viewer in this case more about what it is I'm after as a as a as an artist in general. The, the solo things, I have to say, it's it's a kind of crystallized way of understanding the kind of central aspects of who I am as an artist. It's not to say that I don't like, there's, a, there's another part of me which is about about writing tunes, about 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 singing songs, about um, all kinds of other things. It's not it's it, it's it's not the only thing, but it does show you the kind of the essence in some in some way. I think absolutely. Well, and well, the one thing I do want to kind of ask you about, and there's a lot of components to you as an artist and as a musician. Uh, in '93, since we're from Kansas City, I want to bring this up. You premiered a commission for the KC Symphony with funding from Meet the Composer, and it was for the uh, uh, for Terrains. What was that experience like for you? Oh, that was an outstanding experience uh, on many, many levels. I had been involved previously with the Kansas City Symphony um, and Bill McLaughlin, who was the conductor at that time, via the person I mentioned very early uh, in my history, Anthony Davis, the composer. He had written some pieces for orchestra, that included myself as a soloist and or as a, an important element that was not part of, exactly part of the orchestra per se, but was integrated into it. And I was, I was an improv, either an improvising element, a groove element, uh, whatever, but I formed a function inside of his music that put me inside of, a, of an orchestral setting. I also did Anthony's, this wasn't in Kansas City, but I did also his uh, opera work. And I performed in three or four of his operas, and it was a wonderful experience as well. And I just, I loved, and it was also tied, I guess, to my own childhood experience with seeing so much orchestral music, which I used to see with, particularly with my grandmother, I used to sit with her after her husband passed away. I took his chair in, the, in Woolsey Hall in New Haven, Connecticut, and witnessed many an incredible um, uh, symphonic concert so something about this was a theme of who who um, of part of who I, I was and so I decided to to launch into what is typical of me in all of my musical careers that I, I kind of like find a challenge like something I've never done before and something for which perhaps I don't even have I do I, we, we could say I don't even have the credential to do like I had never written an orchestral piece or anything like it in my life. I said, okay, I want to write an orchestral piece. <laughs> Here I go. <laughs> you know, fearlessly jumping into the fire of, of a rather a complex uh, compositional endeavor. Here's a guy who is, and, and remind you that I'm completely self-taught when it comes to composition. So well, I don't have the typical skills that somebody entering into such a serious situation would typically have. And so I, it was a, it was a super interesting experience. Not only did I have, um, the opportunity to do this piece with the Kansas City Symphony, um, but I also had a residency with the symphony. So I was in Kansas City for the first three weeks, and then I came back for uh, after then there was a break for about a month, and then I came back for the for the for one final week. At the end of which, I did three performances with the with the orchestra um, in the symphony hall. Uh, 
three performances of this of this piece, which was what a gift. I mean, what an incredible experience. But part of the experience that was interesting for me was that it was, of course, a huge learning experience for me. The first rehearsal, which happened almost on the day I arrived, I had printed out all my parts. And of course, I'm a, a bit naive about writing orchestral parts. I've never done it before, but I did them all myself, which is, of course, mistake number one. And I handed out all these parts to everybody. And um, at the end of the rehearsal, the music, when I listened to Bill conduct it and go through it, sounded absolutely awful to me. I mean, it sounded like <laughs> written a complete disaster. I, the whole thing was was. You know, and I, I could see where problems that I could solve were, but I also saw that the whole thing was, I realized, wow, this is a lot harder to write for orchestra. It's like, it, here I've been, all I've been writing for up until now was small, more or less small groups, which is like driving a speedboat compared to a, a you know, a, a giant uh, ocean freighter, you know, which is the orchestra. So I had a lot to learn. And not only did I have a lot to learn, but the orchestra, which was kind of endearing of them, I have to say, stood in a line at the end of the rehearsal, about 15 to 20 musicians deep, with their parts, in, and it came up to give me a piece of their mind about what I had shown, what I had done on the part. It was a friend, it was done in a way to try to help me, but but it was also like kind of bitching about, like, well, this is, you know, you can't do this, you can't have this, yeah, this is an impossible page turn, you can't, well, you know, on and on and on. So all these mistakes. So for the next three weeks, I labored over the piece, trying to decide what to do to improve it, I, sp I was working on it 24-7, I, I, and, and I also went to the rehearsals of the Kansas City Symphony, and I sat in the orchestra at rehearsals and listened to what it felt like to be a cellist. Wow. Listened to what it felt like to be the bass clarinet player. But, you know, the perspective of an, of an orchestra player. I learned so much. I mean, it was invaluable, completely invaluable. And that was the point of the residency, of course. So I came back three weeks later with now much, much better parts than I had originally. I kind of took all that criticism and tried to process it. I went also had a long discussion with a librarian who explained that I showed me a lot of music. It was a huge learning experience. And I, I came back and things went considerably better the second time. And, and I, finally I began to play because I was the concerto soloist for the orchestra. But I hadn't played a note on the first rehearsal. I just sat there in horror, listening to <laughs> this garbage I had written. So, uh, uh, so the second rehearsal went better. And the only thing that I'm, that I came back, I've been, and I made more improvements between then and, and when I came back. And, uh, the, and but then rehearsal, the rehearsal time when I came back was very short, as is typical with orchestras. In fact, I never really had that much time with the orchestra itself. And I learned how efficient I had to be with writing and how quick musicians are, but how little they understand what a new piece of music is about. They, they have no clue. They're sitting there, they have no idea, they just have to follow the conductor and hope for the best. Yeah. There's no way that they can understand the piece. And I'm not used to this idea that, that, a, that a player of a piece of music doesn't actually grasp what's going on. They're just functioning inside of a machine and trying to and, and doing exactly what you tell them to do. And um, I wasn't used to that. It was a, so it was, a lot of this was really a very deep understanding of this form of music making, but also at a great appreciation for what it's like to be in an orchestra. Uh, in the end, the piece was done, and against my wishes, I wanted to make cuts. I wanted to take sections out of the piece, but Bill insisted that I keep the whole piece as it was. And, I, you know, that performance, eh, it was okay. 
I, but I would have liked to have taken those sections out. I wasn't happy with it. So five years later, I did get another chance to do it again, and this time for a smaller orchestra, and this time with all the cuts and edits and with a lot of time to think about the piece. And then I made what I think is a quite successful piece, about five minutes shorter than what I originally had written. And um, it put the Kolno Rundfunk uh, Orchestra in, in Cologne, Germany. <clears throat> and that performance, I'm, I'm quite happy with. You can hear a small piece of that performance uh, in this, uh, if you hunt my news page on my website, there's a, uh, there's a discussion about a, sh a long a show I did on WKCR. And there's a link to a page that has a streaming of that radio show. And during that radio show, I played many rare recordings that aren't published, including part of that one. So that's a chance to hear what I was just talking about. Right on. Perfect. You know, the one thing that's kind of reverberate throughout your career is that you've gotten fellowships and grants. Of all of these recognitions you've received, I want to ask you this, not what your favorite one was, but which one did you get that kind of blindsided you? You didn't expect it? Uh, well, I can't say that that's ever was ever true because I didn't receive what we refer to as uh, prizes. I, I, I sought all these grants, meaning I applied to them. In the case of the Guggenheim, which is clearly the most notable uh, acknowledgement I've ever had of my work via a very established and, and, and important organization, I applied to the Guggenheim, I think, seven or eight times before I actually got the grant. And um, in the case of Meet the Composer, the grant that's, that, that allowed me to do this orchestral piece, a huge grant and a very wonderful grant, that uh, my proposal worked, but it was also the efforts of the Kansas City Symphony which submitted the proposal that made the whole thing happen. So that was perhaps maybe one of the greater gifts I think I ever had. And, and what, as you just heard from the story I told, it was a profound experience for me. And on every level, I, the composer met, <laughs> I had a real meet the composer experience. It was it was exactly what they kind of hoped would happen, and, and it was a good, all, all a good thing. But like I say, all these, all these grants, and I have, it's true that I did get quite a few of them um, uh, at a particular time when grants were a little bit more available, and they really helped make make it through the drier times of my performance career. And I was able to focus on my composing you know, aspects of my career. They all came with a lot of labor and a lot of effort. Uh, never did I receive something that was. Uh, like some of the grants that have come up recently, like MacArthur's and things like this nature, where it's where you have no—it's kind of a huge surprise. And oh wow, I'm acknowledged how wonderful, or, or the National Endowment gives you a master's award or whatever. None of this has happened, at least so far. So I can't say I can't really actually had anything that was blindsided. It was all stuff that I really uh, I made an effort to get, and in some cases I had to make efforts over many many years to get some of those grants. So let me ask you this, as an omnivore of music and one that has seen a lot of live shows all over every possible spectrum of music, if you could go back in time and you could witness any musician anywhere, who would you want to see? Well, I certainly want to see Coltrane and I'd certainly want to see Bird. I mean, those are things that everybody wishes they could see if they hadn't had a chance to see them. I felt like I got pretty close to those two musicians because I got to know Elvin. I met Jimmy Garrison. I met McCoy Tyner. And I and so in some respects, I felt like I, um, 
I got closer to that. And with Bird, of course, I, I did meet Philly Joe. I met Art Blakey. I met uh, the drummers, many of the drummers who played with him, Roy Haynes. These are people whom I got to, if not know, I got to at least meet. Um, and, and to hear them play, of course. So these were things that brought me close to that. But I'd like to, I actually, I would really like to go back to New Orleans around 19, uh, I would say 1915 or so, and actually hear what, what we don't know. Um, that's what I'd like to hear. Because that, that period of time, and I'd also like to know, I'd also like to hear what happened at the Jenkins Orphanage in, in, in South Carolina. I, I would love to be able to experience it. I would love to have heard Robert Johnson, actually. That would be something I would love to have heard. And I would love to have heard uh, Patsy Cline sing. Um, I'm a big into singers. Singers is really the thing that I'm most taken with if in the, on the listening front of things it's it's them that I get the most information from it's them perhaps I've received the most direct and clear cut um, inspiration from something about singing just speaks very clearly to me and I did a, I did a record of songs myself and it's something that I do plan to return to in the future in the not too distant future actually I am working on it and these days I began singing myself as opposed to writing songs for somebody else to sing and I think I have I think I'm finding that voice and understanding what what that is for me and slowly I think I, it will materialize into a project it's just a I'm just working on the craft of it at the moment, doing a lot of study and writing and singing different repertoire from different songwriters I admire. So that, those are a few people I'd love to have seen. Robert Johnson would be very much on the list, and everything associated with Glenn Blake and Mississippi John Hurt and a lot of people whom I never got to see. But I did get to see a lot of the blues people when they had the revival in the 60s. Some of that I managed to get to. I did get to see Alan Wolf. I did get to see James Cotton. I got to see a lot. I got to see some pretty cool stuff. And um, I already mentioned all the 60s rock stuff. I saw Cream and their first tour. I mean, how wow. cool was that? Yeah. It was like really uh, quite an experience to watch to watch that band live. Um, so I, I feel like I, I was gifted a great deal with what I did get to see. Um, of course... With my, as you say, omnivorous taste, I, <laughs> I could go on. Sure. But I would, I would love to be in that period of New Orleans in particular that is undocumented because there was no, nobody wanted to. There's so little that comes, just a few cylinders here and there that goes before 1917. So anytime before 1917 and that, I'm so curious to hear the development of this brass playing in terms of how it found itself, how it related itself to blues form, how it emerged out of this ragtime marching feel and how that inflection began to infuse itself into this into this rhythm. It's a fascinating period of musical development and New Orleans must have been quite a place, I have to say, in that time. So it still is in a way, but, but wow, then it was just something else. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get to the essence of you as, as a prolific creator, an educator, visual artist, composer, percussionist. Everybody has their version of who you are. Your family does, your friends do, your business associates, your students. But who do you personally think you are? I like your succinct questions. Thank you. <laughs> of course, I wish I could provide such succinct answers. <laughs> that's just not possible with me. I, I, I'm a multi. I have to. I have to explain things on several different levels at once. Um, sure. Who am I? 
It's a great question. Thank you. Um, identity um, is an aspect that I think is a constantly evolving um, ex- um, life experience. I don't think we, if we think we know who we are, I think it's just an illusion, really, because I think things change and things become, things are never quite the same. Um, if you're really sensitive and paying attention, you begin to notice the, the changes in the way you feel and think and your physicality and your and all aspects of the way in which you are, um, how you how you are as a social being and how you are alone. I spend, for instance, um, in this period of my life, I was married all my life, but now I'm I'm, I'm single. I'm I, I'm and living alone, and I'm very. I spend a lot of time walking in mountains. I swim a lot. I'm in a very period a period of great um, physical health. I'm in a really good physical health, which is a great thing. Of course, and I, I find that I um, that one aspect of who I am is that I so appreciate with such gratefulness that I can't even explain how grateful I am about how amazing the proposition of being on this planet actually is, and I can appreciate it more perhaps than I ever did before. And I'm old enough to uh, have, an, have a feeling for um, the limited engagement, as I refer to it, that this that the being on this planet uh, does entail. We all are only here for a period of time. And when you get to that point in your life, you begin to appreciate details a great deal more. So part of who I am reflects, uh, in terms of my artistry, I think I, I attempt to reflect in a very honest way um, uh, through my expression, these sentiments of, of great respect for the planet, great respect for the visit here, and great respect for the joy and possibility of life. Um, and uh, that I realize, you know, one can, one can get a little bit pessimistic inside of being an artist because its economy, uh, at least in the art world that I'm involved in, is... is um, well, <laughs> not so great. <laughs> to be perfectly blunt, sure. it's just not a. It's just not an easy choice to make to do the kind of life in, in music that it's not a romantic thing at all. It's it's basically there's something you're getting from it, and that's why you're doing it. And that thing that I'm getting, if I could summarize it in any way, is that I realize that. Even though it doesn't affect a grand number of people, it should be nice if it affected more people and reached out and touched more people than it does at the moment. And perhaps it will someday. But, but at least what I do understand is that music offers a very, very positive vibration, and gives. And here's the thing that really strikes me very strongly these days: I go to give a concert, and I'm in the room with whoever it is who shows up. It could be five people, 20 people, uh, 200 people, or 1,000 people, and we spend an hour, or perhaps two hours if it's a two-set affair, in this room together. And I offer my expression and my artistry and my, the, 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 the most, you know, the most joyous thing that I can, that I can offer. And the, all of us, though, get to sit in this room and shut the world off for two hours and put away the, 
the frigging iPhones, whatever that people have. But anyways, everybody gets quiet and have a chance to just be with that positive experience and let it be whatever it's going to be for them and uh, let it take them wherever it's going to take them. And I think that's kind of huge, particularly in our technology technologically driven uh, life and uh, and or our, our world is full of you know multiple crises and um, and really difficult situations to have this moment of, of basically of peace where this can occur and that I can offer that makes really makes it clear that that's my purpose and that's of course that's partly that's really what my work is here and that therefore identifies part, part of who I am does that make sense that's beautiful I love it I love that answer that's great I think that right there was my final question, a real good way of wrapping up your essence. And I want to thank you for taking some time to talk with me today. I appreciate your story, your honesty, and being candid with me about your life. My pleasure. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Jerry for his music, his story, and his warmth. If you would like to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit the neonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.